Hi, and welcome to the June edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have two great guests for you. The first is Dr. Stephanie Valberg discussing myofibrillar myopathy. And the second, Dr. Siv Hanko Olsen talking about acquired equine polyneuropathy. Stephanie Valberg is the Marianne McPhail Dressage Chair in Sport Medicine at Michigan State University. And she's joined us to discuss her most recent paper titled Clinical and Histopathological Features of Myofibrillar Myopathy in Warm Blood Horses. This can currently be found in the early view section of the EVJ website. Hi Stephanie, thanks for kindly joining us today to discuss your research. Um, the disease process described in your paper has previously been identified in athletic Arabian horses. So could you start by telling us a little bit about this type of myopathy and how it's also potentially linked to warm blood horses? Well, when we originally looked at this disease in Arabian horses, we identified it in horses that were developing muscle stiffness and myoglobinuria very intermittently and usually following you know, 50 or 100 kilometer endurance rides. So they were um, pretty stressed horses with that extent of riding. But the study that we did when looking at their muscle biopsies, none of the horses had had any episodes of tying up within at least a six months of when we took the samples from the horses. And they were resting. And what we found in those biopsies was um, an unusual pattern of staining that created kind of a wavy appearance in their muscle. And we pursued that further by looking at different proteins that are responsible for keeping alignment of myofibrils uh, that are contractile proteins in the muscle cells. And there was one specific protein called Desmond that really stuck out as having abnormal aggregation. And Desmond is a cytoskeletal protein, and its job is to maintain the alignment of the myofibrils and attach them to the cell membrane. And so we went further and looked at electron microscopy and saw abnormal alignment of myofilaments with electron microscopy and, and then gave this a name because everything seems to have to have a name that we can call it in common. We called it a myofibrillar myopathy. And because uh, warm blood horses have incorporated in Arabian bloodlines, and because we have a lot of muscle biopsies from warm blood horses with poor performance where we really didn't have a good definitive diagnosis, we decided to try to apply that Desmond stain to warm bloods and see whether or not we might have a, a similar type of myopathy in a warm blood horses. So are there any similar characteristics between myofibrillar myopathy and either type of polysaccharide storage myopathy? which also affects warm blood horses as well. So uh, polysaccharide storage myopathy, the type 1 polysaccharide storage myopathy is due to a mutation in the glycogen synthase enzyme. And that disease is much more common in horses that are related to quarter horse breeds like paints and appaloosas and in horses that are uh, related to continental European drafts like Belgian and Percheron horses. We don't see that mutation very commonly in warm blood horses with muscle diseases. And so we've designated a lot of those um, muscle biopsies from warm blood horses that have a little bit of aggregation of muscle glycogen in their muscle as type 2 PSSM. And that's kind of a description of the muscle biopsy characteristics, but not a specific diagnosis because we don't know what causes type 2 PSSM. We think now with some more specific stains that a subset of those horses we've designated type 2 PSSM may well fit under this category of myofibrillar myopathy where 
the myofilaments are more susceptible to be misaligned and also to break. And where there are breaks in the myofilaments, the glycogen kind of pools and that creates uh, the appearance of aggregates of normal staining glycogen under the microscope and creates a diagnosis of type 2 PSSM. So we're suspicious that myofibrillar myopathy is a subset of those forces that might have a primary defect that's affecting the myofilaments in the muscle cells. Okay, so what were the specific aims and objectives of this study? So our, our specific aims in this particular study were firstly to describe the subset of horses, warm blood horses that had this abnormal Desmond staining. We wanted to know what their clinical signs were, how they presented, and then to more in a more detailed fashion, look at the muscle of these horses using different stains and electron microscopy. And then the other objective we had was to see whether or not these abnormalities in Desmond staining might potentially exist in several different generations of a family of warm blood horses. And that would suggest that it's possible um, that this could be an inherited muscle disorder. So could you start by telling us about the first part of the study and how you investigated the group of horses with myofibrillar myopathy? Uh, we run a neuromuscular diagnostic laboratory at Michigan State University and previously at the University of Minnesota. And we get uh, five to 10 muscle biopsies a week from horses that have a suspected muscle disease. And that has created for us a database of about 4,000 to 5,000 muscle samples from horses that have um, suspected myopathy. So in this case, what we did was to do a retrospective search in our database of warm blood horses that we had uh, previously diagnosed largely as type 2 PSSM. And we wanted to pick out horses that had a good clinical history and a good evaluation. So they either were horses that the co-authors had uh, personally evaluated, or they were horses in which we had a good relationship with referring veterinarians, and they provided a lot of detailed information, and the horses that had as extensive um, a workup for poor performance as, as could be performed in the clinics where they evaluated. And then um, we looked back for two years through our database and identified the warm blood horses that looked like they could potentially fit that criteria. And then we stained all of those biopsies with Desmond. And of those, we picked out 10 cases that we felt had strong Desmond staining that was abnormal with aggregation. And that would fit the criteria for a, a thorough evaluation in our study. So did you um, look for follow-up um, information as well with these ponies? So we looked at um, their blood work that the referring veterinarians had performed. So we looked to see if they had elevations in serum creatine kinase and aspartate transaminase activity. And that um, was all within normal limits, uh, largely in these horses. And then um, we evaluated their history and what type of exercise intolerance that they had. And then we evaluated muscle biopsies for any kind of muscle histopathology. In some cases, we had samples that we could do electron microscopy on. And then we also went out and took muscle biopsies from healthy warm blood horses that were performing well, so we could contrast the findings we had in the muscle biopsies of our warm bloods with, with healthy performing uh, warm blood horses. Okay, and secondly, how did you investigate the heritability of, of this disease? So we were very, very fortunate that we had um, a warm blood owner that had three generations of horses. 
and she was very open to allowing us to come in and evaluate the horses so we could take muscle biopsies from the horses and look to see whether they had abnormalities in Desmond staining. Many of the horses were either retired geldings or they were um, broodmares, so we didn't have the ability to assess their performance necessarily. We were just able to look at muscle biopsy samples and see whether or not we had changes um, in muscle histopathology and whether or not we could find the abnormal Desmond staining. So those are all horses that were on exactly the same, pro- you know, were on the same property raised in a very similar fashion. So it really wasn't completely possible to distinguish, you know, environmental effects from breeding effects since they were all in the same place. But we wanted to at least begin a genetic investigation to see whether or not we could find these abnormalities in several generations. So when you were comparing the group of horses with uh, myofibrillar myopathy and the control horses, what were the main clinical and histopathological differences that you found? So the, the main clinical differences, of course, we picked our control horses so they were performing well. But the clinical characteristics of the warm blood horses with this suspected myofibrillar myopathy, they're often very similar. And, and they are uh, horses that have... Uh, a history of not performing up to the owner's expectations. They feel like they're uh, not forward and not through. They, um, many of them have exercise intolerance and after about 15 to 20 minutes worth of exercise are not wanting to continue. They don't um, collect well. They don't um, uh, canter well. Sometimes they have difficulty with transitions or they will have an inability to sustain a, a well-collected canter. And then oftentimes on veterinary evaluation, they have um, muscles that may be painful. They're not always on palpation, but they often have a vague lateness behind an abnormality in their gait that can't be pinpointed to one specific joint or one specific ligament and doesn't necessarily respond if you put them on butte. So they're just a vague hind limb lameness and a history of not performing uh, well under saddle and not really being through. And did you find any differences in their uh, muscle enzyme um, levels or CSF samples? So in the muscle enzyme levels, we found that the enzyme levels were really pretty similar between our affected and our control horses. And what that means is that this muscle disease isn't creating damage to the cell membrane and allowing the internal contents to leak out. But what we did find on muscle biopsy in our affected horses is that they have indications of a chronic underlying myopathy in that the nucleus in this uh, cell is not sitting under the cell membrane where a normal nucleus should sit in skeletal muscle. It's sitting uh, quite a high proportion of muscle fibers in the horses that had myofibromyopathy, myopathy. And that in itself is just a nonspecific indication of a chronic underlying irritation in the muscle. But then in addition, what we specifically found was that we had a small number of cells in every case that had aggregates of this abnormal Desmond, so the cytoskeletal protein that is kind of, we believe, reacting to the fact that things are out of alignment um, and is not holding, and things are not holding themselves into alignment. And so we think that you have an increase in the amount of Desmond that's being produced and that it aggregates and forms um, so much Desmond aggregates that you can actually see it under the light microscope. And we would see that from anywhere to, um, you know, six muscle fibers in one of the affected horses up to 
several hundred muscle fibers in affected horses. But usually it's a small percentage of the cells that we think is um, a reflection of this muscle disease. And we confirmed that by looking at electron microscopy in some of the horses. And under the electron microscope, we could also see that there was an increase in some abnormal granule filamentous material that we think might correspond to Desmond and then breaks and ruptures uh, in the in the contractile filaments through the Z disc, aggregation of glycogen and some abnormal mitochondria in those areas where there were breaks. And that's not something that we observe in control horses. So did you conclude that these findings were indeed similar to those seen in Arabian horses? The, the histopathology is similar. The clinical signs aren't necessarily similar. And it, it's difficult to differentiate because Arabian horses, the expectation is not that they hold themselves in a frame and that they have the power and the strength to do um, specific movements like you might in dressage or for jumping. The primary thing that we are looking for in endurance horses is that they can, you know, be very fit and last over that very long distance of, of 50 to 100 kilometer rides. In contrast with the warm blood horses, what people were looking for was within 40 minutes for them to be able to sustain, you know, an active hind limb and uh, a rounded back and the power to be able to jump or to perform a uh, collected canter. So it's difficult to know whether or not this is exactly the same disease or whether it's got similar features under the microscope. And in order to answer that question, we're currently then looking at the biochemical changes that are occurring with the muscle and the molecular changes that are occurring to see if we can determine whether the Arabian disorder is the same as the warm blood disorder where they have distinctive features. So you suggested a management program to the horses with myofibrillomyopathy, which included um, recommended feeding and exercise regime. Did you find that this group of horses responded positively to this um, suggestion? So the changes that we were recommending were just basically um, hypothesizing that if these horses are having breaks in their uh, contractile proteins, maybe what we need to do is to turn over the contractile proteins more and enhance their ability to resynthesize um, skeletal muscle. And we used something that you know, bodybuilders have used, and there's some work that has been done in um, horses as well to show that increasing the amount of whey proteins in com combination with exercise can be helpful in building muscle mass. So our, um, our recommendations are, are somewhat tenuous at present. They're just based on our, our ideas about what are going on. And, and we did find that at least half of the horses showed an increase in their exercise tolerance. They definitely show um, an increase in muscle mass when we use this particular diet. And you have to combine it together with exercise in order to uh, see an improvement. So whether how much is exercise and how much is diet is difficult to distinguish, but the principles of the exercise are just generally good principles for horses with um, sore backs and sore muscles. And that is a lot more long and low warm-up work and really getting them to um, warm up their muscles to provide a long and low frame and stretch out those back muscles. And then to gradually increase strength training using poles and hill work and try to build up muscle strength. And then um, the, the um, amino acid whey supplements, we were trying to ensure that they got fed about 45 minutes around the time of exercise so that they would be incorporated more into their muscle. 
And in some cases, um, we felt like there was a significant improvement. In some horses, the owners didn't uh, follow through with the recommendations or the horses were um, sold to someone that would have the ability to utilize them at a lower exercise level, potentially, where they might be more successful. So I think that the um, my impression from the further cases since this study is about 70% of them feel that their horse is improved, but they don't necessarily feel like the horse is doing the level of exercise that they had originally intended um, to use the horse for. And were your results um, suggestive of a heritable trait to this disease, ultimately? I think what our results say is it's possible that this this could be a heritable trait. We don't, um, as I said, these horses were all kept in the same environment, so we can't distinguish whether there's environmental effects or an inherited effects specifically from this trial. But what it says is this is something that's worth exploring further. We um, we don't know if it's you know uh, a susceptibility, and then there are a lot of dietary and exercise factors that you add to that, and then they start to show signs of the disease. You know whether or not it's a recessive or a dominant trait, or it has multiple genes that are affecting it. We don't really have a good handle on that at this point in time. But I think what our results suggest is that this is something that we could look at further, and it opens up the possibility that maybe we could develop um, a genetic test if it turns out to be inherited, and that might be another avenue to pursue. Is there a quick and easy way to test um, for this disease at the moment? That is that's certainly our goal is our goal with all of our research work is to develop the most accurate diagnostic test and the least invasive diagnostic test. And at the present time, there aren't any validated genetic tests for this disease. We haven't confirmed that it's a, a definitely a heritable trait. So our, uh, at the present time, the best way to diagnose it is through muscle biopsy and doing the Desmond staining and looking to see whether or not you can see that abnormal Desmond stain. What what kind of point in clinical investigations are you finding that clinicians are thinking and wanting to um, test for this disease? Well, I think as most uh, clinicians in practice recognize, it's very difficult to work up a horse that's just got a vague history of poor performance or a potentially sore back or sore muscles. And so this uh, disorder is just one additional diagnostic tool to have in the toolbox. It doesn't supplant any of the workup that's already needed to be done. So evaluating um, the rider's contribution, the saddle's contribution, the t- contribution of training, uh, you know, thorough evaluation for uh, orthopedic disease, thorough evaluation for any skeletal components of the axial skeleton and sacroiliac joints, all of that is, is uh, important to do first. But then when you've ruled out any of those issues and your horse still is not performing properly, it still has a vague hind and lameness, then I think it's important uh, to know that muscle biopsy is another option that might uh, be utilized. Sometimes horse owners want to jump to genetic testing or jump to muscle biopsies first um, because it doesn't necessarily always require the same imaging techniques and detailed and thorough evaluations, but I strongly discourage that. I think we need to rule out these other disorders first and then determine whether muscle may or may not be contributing to the horse's poor performance after that. Would that be your main take-home message for practicing clinicians? Would you have any other useful tips? Yeah, I think, well, I think um, 
I think it's an important contribution to recognize that muscle disease can contribute to musculoskeletal uh, disorders in horses, that we've got a lot of information on the various orthopedic conditions in horses, and muscle is sometimes just thought always to be a secondary response to a primary orthopedic disease. But I think it's important for clinicians to recognize that there may well be primary muscle disorders in some cases that present as vague hind limb lamenesses, and that's something to keep in mind. Okay, Stephanie, well, thanks for a really interesting discussion. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, giving the attention to the study. Thanks very much. Steve Hanko Olsen is an associate professor in the Equine Clinic at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. She'll be discussing her most recent paper titled Long-Term Follow-Up of Norwegian Horses Affected with Acquired Equine Polyneuropathy, which can also be found within the Early View section of the EVJ website. Hi, Siv. Thank you for joining us today to discuss your recent paper in EVJ. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about the disease acquired equine polyneuropathy and um, tell us what kind of horses it's been diagnosed in? Well, this is a neurological disease with very characteristic uh, clinical signs. Um, the horse is the knuckle uh, in the fetlocks. It's bilateral, but not always uh, simultaneously, um, primarily in the pelvic limbs. And it's the, the most not obvious apathic. Uh, and they're otherwise bright, alert, and responsive, and they have normal appetite if they're not too stressed in a way. Um, and it has been diagnosed in many breeds of horses and all kinds of users, male and female alike. And we've seen it in all ages except in foals. And in what countries has it been diagnosed? Well, it was formerly often referred to as the Scandinavian Nuckman syndrome, as the first reports came from, from Sweden and Norway only. But we have lately, in later years, also seen a few horses in Finland with AP. Uh, but as far as we know, no, no other countries. So what were the aims and objectives of your study? Well, we know that uh, many of the affected horses will recover after a long reconvalescence time. But there is a lack of a large-scale long-term follow-up of the survivors um, and a study of their performance level and their possible residual clinical science after disease. So um, we needed felt that the need for them. Uh, the main aim of this study was to give a knowledge-based information on the prognosis and uh, with focus on the athletic performance after the disease in uh, the survivors. Okay, so could you describe your study design um, and the grading system you use to assess the severity of the clinical signs caused by this disease? This is a uh, retrospective cohort study uh, and included horses that were, were registered in, with AP in Norway between 2000 and 2012. And the main aim was to follow the survivors, but horses that were euthanized due to the disease also were included as background information. Uh, and the horses have been registered uh, at the time of the diagnosis, to me mostly, uh, and we had info about uh, age and breed and sex and use and type of forage fed and severity grade of disease and so on. Um, and between 2014 and 15, the owners were asked to fill out a questionnaire that was reported back by email or by telephone introduced to me. And in addition to the previous information, we also asked about management during the six months after diagnosis uh, and training, how and when it was resumed, 
uh, the athletic performance level after disease and uh, if there were any residual clinical signs, among others. And the grading system that we used is the same that was introduced uh, in the first paper that was published of the disease in 2008. And it's a clinical grading system from one to four, where four is recumbent. Uh, and it's actually uh, mild, moderate, and severe grades, the one, two, and three. Well, the mild cases, the grade one, they show intermittent knuckling, but correct it immediately and are able to, to do some work, mostly. While in grade two, they remain in that knuckle position for several seconds. Uh, and the grade three horses, they uh, knuckle mostly simultaneously, uh, simultaneously in both uh, pelvic limbs. Um, and they're not able to run on a collapse in the pelvic limbs if they do. And this is a rather crude system, but uh, and, and the clinical science may vary a bit uh, during the day and uh, also between days. And horses may be much worse if they are stressed. Uh, for instance, trailer rides may make them mostly worse. But uh, together with the history around the time of examination, this is still a way of grouping in different uh, severity grade degrees of this disease. So how many horses were you able to collect follow-up information for and include in your study? Well, from 2000 to 2012, 254 horses were registered with the AP in, uh, in Norway. And from this pool of horses, 143 were included in this study. Um, and the, these were cases that we had a detailed history and a thorough workup was performed and the owners were willing to participate. And of these 143 horses, uh, 86 were utilized due to AP and 81 of them within six months of diagnosis. And for the survivors, they were followed from one to four and a half, uh, 14 and a half years. So you looked at characteristics associated with the survivors and the non-survivors. Which characteristics were significantly associated with both of these groups? Well, uh, the survivors were, not surprisingly, um, the lower grades. They had mostly, the majority were grade one or two. We had only four or seven percent of the survivors were grade three and two or three and a half percent were grade four initially. While the non-survivors, they had significantly higher severity grade at the time of diagnosis. Uh, 26 of the 73 horses where we had uh, re registered the initial severity grades were grade 3 and 4. Uh, and median time for euthanasia was uh, in the non-survivors uh, 24 and a half day, but ranged between one day and 22 months. Um, uh, but uh, compared with uh, sex, age, breed, use, anything like that, there was no difference between the survivors and non-survivors. And you were able to look at long-term follow-up for the survivors. What was um, what were the characteristics of these survivors, and what were their remaining clinical signs? Well, um, the median uh, disease duration, and uh, that means uh, the time where the knuckles still knuckles was 4.9 months, but varied between only one day, and that is the day of examination, and up to two and a half years or 2.4 years. Uh, and the median time for resumed training was 6.7 months uh, and varied between 2 and 20 months. Uh, and we did see uh, that it was a significantly longer time for the grade 2 horses to uh, re resume training than the grade 1 horses. 
40 of the 57 horses that were in 40, 57 uh, survivors, they were in athletic use before the disease, and all of those returned to training, and all but three returned to the same or higher level uh, of athletic performance as well. Um, and of the 17 horses that were not in training, there were nine young horses that were not broken to ride. And two of them were the severest grade, actually. Uh, had one grade three and one grade four. And the grade three horse recovered completely and was broken to ride as planned. Um, the grade four horse uh, um, had some remaining clinical signs, probably due to uh, recumbency during young age for a long time. Uh, and but the remaining seven horses, there were six of them were broken to ride, and one went into breeding, which was the plan. Um, and the remaining eight of the seventeen horses, they were breeding horses, and uh, two of those were broken to ride as well, and um, uh, the rest went uh, continued with breeding as planned. So they seemed to um, have no no residual clinical signs at all. And most of these horses were pleasure horses, um, but some of them were used uh, more uh, strenuously exercised. And 11 were competing in dressage and show jumping. And according to the owners, seven of these horses were, were at a higher level than previous uh, before the disease, mostly because they became older. And two were at the same level and two were at the lower level, level than before disease. And we also had four endurance horses that were competing at national and international level, uh, and three trotters uh, participating in, uh, successfully in the races all of the time. But we did uh, also uh, get comments from the from 14 of the 57 horses that they had clinical signs that they thought were connected to the disease. But only 11 of these uh, 14 ho uh, horses or the owners of these horses uh, felt that it affected their performance negatively. And mostly they reported that uh, they had some hindquarter weakness and the, the horses stumbled more often than usual and sometimes also knuckled for a long time, at least after they have started training again. And we had three horses that became ill and twice uh, between uh, one, two and four years after the initial disease. But and two of them they recovered completely the second time around as well, uh, while the third one re recovered but uh, uh, had a, a lower uh, athletic level after after the second time. Um, and only three of these fourteen horses uh, the owner felt that the residual clinical signs uh, affected the athletic performance uh, of the horses. And all of these uh, three horses they were ill in 2012, so they had the shortest follow-up. Uh, history, so maybe they're still in recovery. Okay, and one of your cases sounded um, very interesting. Shetland was diagnosed with this disease whilst pregnant, um, yeah. I think, and successfully gave birth to a healthy foal and herself recovered. So do you yeah. think this um, disease affects reproductive ability or breeding potential? No, I don't think actually. And we've seen uh, more cases than this. This one. This was a really nice story because she was really uh, she was a great four horse. And uh, but it's easy to be a Shetland, so they were able to help her up all the time. Um, but um, um, we have had horses that were quite severely affected, but uh, the foals have never been affected, so it doesn't really affect the foals at all as long as the mare is able to give birth and uh, able to stand on up to till uh, birth time. So what's the hypothesized um, pathophysiology of this um, acquired polyneuropathy? 
Well, we know from these the pathological studies um, that the, from the affected nerves that this is a demyelinating and predominantly large fiber affected polyneuropathy. And we see these conspicuous inclusion bodies in the Schwann cells. So we think now that this uh, primary Schwannopathic disease uh, and this, that the demyelination is secondary uh, and also some inflammation. But we are still struggling to find uh, the triggering factor that leads to this uh, this very, uh, the both clinical and pathological, very uniform disease, actually. Um, so we don't know because um, it doesn't, uh, it does not at all look like it's a contagious disease. And the climate is very different from the south of Sweden to the north of Norway. And there's no common drug history. Um, and it's very seasonal. We see cases only between, or mostly between December and May. And the only common factor that they have found is uh, bracket forage, which 95% of the cases have been fed uh, partly or, or the whole ration uh, of the forage. But we haven't found any, uh, any anything in the forage so far that can explain the, the changes, unfortunately. So we're still looking into that. Are you seeing a spread of this disease or is it um, relatively um, geographically contained? Well, we have seen for 20 years now, in uh, or more than 20 years actually in Norway, and uh, and it seems like well they have it in uh, in Finland from time to time, but and I only know of two horses in Germany that looked very similar, but uh, were undiagnosed and there were also singular cases and not uh, not like we see it here. Mostly we see it in more horses at the farm, but not not all of them. Um, so I don't think really that there's going to be, a, well, I, I would be surprised if it's uh, a lot of like, new cases during uh, or, or spread all over Europe. But um, I don't know. I don't can't, I can't explain why we see it more here or we see it only here, actually. So, Do you have a take home message for any clinicians having to deal with this disease? Well, I think it is interesting that uh, I think uh, we have also shown that even the great four horses can survive. So uh, we shouldn't be too, um, you should uh, always tell the owners to be patient because uh, I think most horses can survive, but uh, it's very difficult to keep a, a recumbent horse. You need a very dedicated owner and a very cooperative horse. Um, and you don't know because we also have some low grade horses that never recovered. We had some uh, grade two, um, grade one and grade two horses that they started stumbling every time they started to, to train the horses again. So somehow a few horses seem to reach a plateau, at least from a long time. Um, so it, it's difficult to say if they really will be okay. But the severity grade is not the only thing that you should put into decision uh, when, when you find a horse. If the, if the owners really want to try, then you should give the horse rest for a long time and I think most of the horses will actually recover um, and of course the question is uh, what can we do to, to prevent it um, and in, at least in Norway uh, rapt forage is very popular um, uh, and I can't say that you shouldn't use it because most horses are fed it and most horses don't get AP um, but I think uh, so far I think it's uh, the only proportion that you can say uh, that I would recommend to change the forage at the time, at least if you have more horses at the farm, um, because that's the only thing we, that we can say for now actually, um, but at least do that part. But then again, it might be that uh, they have, if it's a toxin or toxic trigger or whatever it is, um, it might be that they have um, gotten that long time before uh, the disease. 
So um, before the clinical science, it might be that uh, the forage is already disposal and that the forage that they're eating now is okay. So, um, but if they can change it, I, I think I would recommend that as well. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us to discuss your, your research. Okay. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and join us again in two months for the August EVJ podcast.